Hello, and welcome to Developer's Journey, the podcast shining a light on developers' lives from all over the world. My name is Tim Bourguignon, and today I receive Sean Wildermuth. Sean has been tinkering with computers and software since he got a VIC-20 in the early 80s. As a Microsoft MVP since 2002, he's been involved with Microsoft as an ASP.NET insider and client dev insider. He has authored eight books and innumerable articles on software development. You can also see him at one of the local and international conferences. He's spoken at many, including TechEd, Oredev, SCD, NDC, VS Live, Dev Intersection, Mix, Dev Teach, Dev Connections, and Dev Reach, and probably many more. And he's one of the wilder minds. Sean, welcome to Dev Journey. Thank you. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. You have to tell, what is a wilder mind? Uh, it's my company. So uh, we're called Wilder Mind, which is sort of a play on my name. Uh, and we do training mostly. We do a little uh, consulting as well. And so uh, um, it's just a what I think is a clever version of my name. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is. Thanks for clearing that out. Okay. But, but let, let's backtrack. How did you go from that VIC-20 in the 80s to being an MVP um, in 2002? Well, I guess I'll start at the very beginning. Um, uh, growing up, I was, uh, our family was really poor, and I didn't even know what computers were at all. But I, luckily, we lived a few blocks away from um, a, a pretty affluent neighborhood, and they had a computer at their house, and I used to hang out there, and I learned about having a computer, and I was just obsessed as soon as I got that first computer you know, uh, doing a little programming here or there and trying to figure this all out and meeting with other little geeky kids about how they did it. And uh, uh, I was luck lucky enough that uh, when I was 16, I got hired at this little company for a summer job to write software on this uh, old uh, um, Z80 system, which some people might remember. Um and that was sort of my my entrance. Um, I eventually dropped out of high school and dropped out of college because I was just enjoying writing code too much. And uh, uh, for a long time, that's left me in this sort of like, you know, uh, feeling like an imposter because I don't have the CS degree or the master in this or have a doctorate like a lot of the other people in, in software. Uh, and some, some of it has been that I've just been really l lucky to find good mentors along the way. And some of it is, you know, our, our industry is so driven by knowledge versus credentials. Um, it's a little different than, than the uh, normal sciences, at least in the U S where, what degree you got, where you got it is, is, is super important about the kind of job um, you want to be doing. And so I sort of went from job to job uh, for years um, probably the first 14 years, 15 years of my career. I've been doing this for, oh, let me think, um, 34 years now, I think. And um, just trying to learn whatever I could on the way. My, my specialty when I was um, getting started was actually learning, uh, uh, being hired someplace where they didn't have anyone or could find anyone that knew a particular system or software or technology. And there was a lot of these little languages, uh, you know, running around back then. 
pre-internet and all, all of that. Um, but because I had this computer growing up, I wasn't afraid to just try and fail and try and fail until it worked. And that has been so crucial to sort of my career path. You know, I never really um, planned on what I wanted to do in this industry. Uh, uh, I didn't think, oh, I want to be a manager or I want to do this. I actually kind of wanted to get out of it. I didn't want to be uh, a geek. So, the you know, it, anyone who's seen a picture of me knows I'm a, a pretty hardcore geek, right? But uh, it wasn't growing up. It's not the picture I wanted, you know. When I would go to parties in high school, I didn't want to tell people that I liked Dungeons and Dragons and played with computers. I, you know, I'd rather tell them that, you know, I wanted to be a, a rock star or I don't know what, um, uh, you know, as m- many decisions in my life have been driven by my desire to uh, make women smile. Uh, being a geek didn't seem one that uh, was all that attractive. Um, but it's something that I had, a, you know, an, an innate gift for. And it wasn't until really I got into my 30s, which was 12 or 13 years in, that I just went, you you know who you are, right? You love doing this. Why are you fighting it so hard and just sort of giving into it? I always thought this was sort of a stepping stone or a distraction until I figured out what I really wanted to do with my life. Mm-hmm. Did you remember when that happened? Was there was there a moment there was. Uh, I had moved to Boston, uh, and I found this job at this medical software company. And uh, there was a, a my manager, I guess he was my manager, maybe just the lead, I think it was the lead, uh, Ron Rinaldi. And he was so crucial to uh, my development as a, as a developer because he um, mentored me in a, a – way that I've sort of stolen my whole career. And that is instead of like hammering what I was doing well and what I wasn't doing well, what he was really good at was making me want to be a better developer. So early in my career, I could make stuff work, but it didn't, my code wasn't very maintainable. I didn't like to write comments. I didn't like to be structured. I just could sort of hack stuff together. It was sort of, you know, was something I was, good at, but it didn't mean that the person coming behind me two years later was going to be able to make sense of it. Because I didn't think about code being, uh, you know, that good code was beautiful code and was easy to read and that this is how you planned out code. And so watching the way he did code and, and, and intermingling my code with him, uh, with his code, made me want to write better code. And uh, ha- having that example was so crucial to me wanting to just take this whole job seriously. Um, I had sort of, you know, um, gotten by by just being a hard worker and and smart instead of wanting to really apply myself um, for, for quite a long time because, you know, I was always the one computer guy in some small company for for a, quite a long time. And so I didn't really have that exposure. I wasn't going to user groups and I wasn't, you know, um, I, was, I was pretty isolated in that way. Um, and then when I started to take it seriously, I realized how important all that was, not just to software, but to me, that that being good at what I do and being able to explain what I've done and, and uh, um, uh, create good software that, you know, not just 
that has fewer bugs or that runs faster, but that uh, every line of code we write lives for such a long time that the value in, in creating good code isn't just whether your bug count is low and whether uh, it runs efficiently, but also that the company that has invested in this code can continue to use this code and to maintain and uh, enhance this code for years to come. Uh, there's an old adage, I'm not sure it's true anymore, but it certainly was back in the C++ days that um, every dollar in development that's spent, only 10% is writing new code. Um, that 90% is in is spent maintaining code. And so getting that code right the first time so that you can maintain it pays off huge dividends later on. Yeah, that's that's. Basically, I think what uh, what Uncle Bob um, wrote in Clean Code that uh, you spend ten percent of your time writing code and ninety percent um, reading it that would match at least with this. Sure, sure, yeah. Uh, a lot of this goes back to McConnell's uh, Code Complete book that I think is still in print, but that was the one that uh, I dove into and really was like, oh, you know, I want to be good at this because the reality is that I've never been very detail-oriented. And our, jo our job as software developers is being de detail-oriented on, on the whole. Um, and so in some ways, I was always a better architect than I was a coder. Uh, and I think that, be, that continues to be true. But figuring out, I think that's one of the challenges for people in this industry is to figure out where your strengths are and where your weaknesses are and try to augment the strengths and not the weaknesses. What I find is that people are tend to be more interested in finding, in getting a, a title that makes them seem more important or that includes a raise or whatever the case may be, than, than really finding the right fit. You know, I think most developers are a jigsaw piece and we're trying to figure out where we best fit in the puzzle, whether that's some people are, better at writing plumbing code. Some people are better at writing client code. Some people have the aesthetic for doing UX work. Some people have the the, the head for, for database work. Um, figuring out where you want to be and what you want to be doing, I think is, is, is so crucial. And when people come out of college or boot camps or wherever they come from, they don't know that yet. There's no way to know that until you've done a bunch of different things and you're like, oh, This is where I feel the most stretched. It's not about what comes easy. It's about, in some ways, where you can grow. Because our job as developers, I keep on saying, isn't to write code. I know it feels like we're writing code. Our job as developers is to learn. That may be learning about the business you just got hired into and how they do business so that you can turn that and, and transform that through code whether it's learning a new skill because the speed of technology moves so much. And so if you think you're coming out of college or a boot camp or even, you know, changing jobs after 10 years and you know everything, that's a, that's a death sentence, right? Um, even people who have, I, I did a talk at a Fox pro users group a few years ago. And even people that are using an old technology and have, feel like they know it inside and out, they are probably learning something deeper every week or every month of their career. And that, that I think, is what, what draws people into this job so, so much. It's what drew me and has kept me here for, you know, 30-plus years now, is this desire to be excited about something new. 
I would like to come back to uh, to Ron, your your mentor you mentioned before. Sure. Do you remember how he went up and pique your interest and get you interested in in writing beta code? It's interesting because Ron Ron was so laid back. It wasn't he wasn't trying to um, encourage me. Even he just set such a great example that when I had to interact with his code and I'd have to figure out the way his code worked so I could write this other piece that goes with it, that I was like, oh, this is the way coding's supposed to be. I'm not supposed to be digging into some terse code. Um, Ron's style was never to um, um, to push people or anything. It was this sort of like, well, wouldn't it be easier if, or have you ever thought of doing this? It was this very... Um, um, almost a, um, a, a Tai Chi way of of mentoring, where he could sort of just push you in the right direction and very subtly without you really, really knowing it. And it improved the quality of everyone's code, you know, in looking at that. And this is before pair programming and code reviews were really uh, that much of a thing. And this was back in the VB3 and VB5 days. So it's not like there's even a language that matters. The things I've learned in writing good code apply to pretty much any language I've worked with. Um, you know, I'll, I get frustrated when I hear people, well, I'm going to just hack up the JavaScript. JavaScript doesn't matter. It's not a real language. Da, 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 da. I, you know, I'm going to write good C sharp code or whatever the server side code they're writing. And I'm like, it's all code. It's all just, you know, 80% of it is, you know, while if, and branching, right? It's it eighty percent of most languages until you get maybe into functional languages is really all the same. You're a good coder. You're not a good C sharp coder or a Java coder. You're you should be a good coder. That's what we should be, you know, striving for. Even in the midst of deadlines and trying to get that last ten percent of a project done, which for me is is you know it's the hellscape of down the wire. I love the first 80% of a project, but I think most people like me hate the last 20% of triaging bugs and uh, working with deadlines and staying late. And, you know, yeah. I can feel the pain. That's part of the job we have to do, but don't really enjoy doing, I, I think. <laughs> yeah. And I, th I think, again, I think that's the nature of, of, where I feel like I've succeeded in uh, figuring out what works for me. You know, at some point, um, let me think, back in 2000 or maybe 1999, I went to one of my first conferences, WinDev in um, Boston. It might have even been earlier than that, but I think that's about right. And uh, I met Chris Sells, who was another person that uh, really helped me and mentored me. Um, and he was speaking at the conference and I sort of pulled him aside after his talk and was like, I want to speak at conferences. I like the idea of sort of, you know, it, in truth, I like the sound of my own voice and the ego hit, but I also like sharing what, you know, I've learned with others. How do I do this? And, uh, he had encouraged me, uh, you know, he said the best way is to sort of have a resume for this thing. So have you thought about writing articles? And I hadn't, like, it didn't even occur to me to write for a magazine or something like that. This is before I even had a blog, I think. And uh, 
that opened up my, like I decided to write some articles and begged people to let me write some articles so that I could speak at conferences, which is really the backwards way of doing it. Um, but what that taught me was that I like the breakdown. I like breaking down a technology and explaining it to people. Cause that's what you really, you know, in doing a conference talk or doing something else, um, um, you know, a book or a video or a course, that's part of that challenge. And so um, somewhere around, uh, what, 18 years ago is when I started to think, oh, this teaching and learning thing is something that I really enjoy because the the problem really tickles that figure out gene without having to necessarily have that last 20% of project work. It was a sort of this mythical place. And I think in every developer's life, at some point, they come to that road of, do I want to just be an individual contributor? Like, is that really where I'm best and I love it? And this, you know, having the challenge of code every day, do I want to become a lead or a manager where part of my work is working with other developers and helping them excel, becoming mentors, that sort of thing. Do I want to uh, go into teaching? Do I want to start my own company? Like coding on its own uh, usually has that uh, several moments in people's careers where they have to m- make a decision about what they want. Because, frankly, a lot of coders don't make great managers, but some do. Not all coders make great teachers, but some do. Not all coders make good architects, some do. And so sort of figuring that out has has been uh, really important to me. One of the things that has driven my... Uh, sort of life's path for good or bad is this, uh, there's a quote that says uh, uh, in any minute, uh, in any moment of decision, I believe it's Teddy Roosevelt, but I could be wrong. In any moment of decision, there's three things you can do. The best thing you can do is the right decision. The second best thing you can do is the wrong decision. And the third thing you can do is do nothing at all. And, that idea has really driven me to when these moments of decision in a career come to make a decision, to take the risk, to, you know, the idea of courage is being afraid and doing it anyway, instead of, you know, being fearless. That all happens a lot in this career and it can be very comfortable to stay in one job for a really long time where you're doing the same thing day after day and it gets comfortable and you've got a mortgage to pay and you've got kids to put through college. And that's certainly, you know, that is a choice just like finding a new challenge or learning on the weekends or going to that conference or wanting to speak at that conference, whatever the case may be, all those are choices you can make. And, and uh, I think that's a challenge in this business is, where do you want to fit in? Where do you want to be long-term? Because there's always going to be, you know, uh, 19-year-olds coming out of boot camps or college that can code. And as developers, we have to figure out where we fit. You know, some of us just love code so much that that's that's where it comes in. There was a, uh, because I'd met Chris there was a moment in uh, uh, 2000 when uh, Chris had asked me to help um, work on a project. And up to that point in my career, 
I had been, you know, the the smartest guy at a tiny company or the big fish in a small pond, whatever you want to be called. I like being the savior. Oh, you know, this isn't working. Let's get Sean to look at it. Oh, it worked. Woo, you know. Um and so when when Chris asked me, uh this was to come work for Developmentor, which at the time had Chris Sells and Don Box and Tim Ewald and all these people I incredibly admired and that frankly scared the shit out of me. I'm not sure if whether we can curse on the show, but, uh, and that was the most, that was the most difficult decision I've ever made. And that was, do I stay here in Boston? Cause I also needed to um, move across the uh, country to join them where I know I'm not the smartest guy in the room. Am, am I willing to go to where I get that ego hit by being the alpha developer or whatever you want to call it in a company and go to where every day I'm going to work and I know that uh, I'm not the smartest guy there? And because I took that risk of of um, uh, of being found out or... Um, uh, being challenged intellectually every day, that uh, changed everything for me. It made me realize that, oh, I don't have to be the savior. I don't have to, uh, you know, be right in every case. You know, there's a very humbling thing about being in an architecture discussion or a coding discussion and being wrong and being able to admit it. Um, this actually happened with with. Chris back in the C++ days when we were doing some stuff and he said, well, I don't think you're using the, you know, B strings or whatever it was back then, maybe a C string. I don't remember anymore. Uh, correctly, you know, maybe you should look it up. And I, and so I asked him, well, how does it work? And he goes, I'm not sure. Let's, let's find out. And so we, we sat there and figured it out and him saying to me that he didn't know something, you know, I just assumed he had little, literally had written a book on this technology, but that he didn't have it at his fingertips told me, Oh, none of us have to have this all on our fingertips. You know, this is sort of the fallacy of the whiteboard interview is that's not how coding happens. And being willing to say, I don't know is such a cru- crucial skill to put yourself out there and go, I don't know, but let, we can find out or I can find out or let's figure it out. Um, it's just, that was such a turning point in my career being able to, I didn't have to compete to be the smartest guy in the room every time I could just let people, you know, people bring their own skills and benefits that, meshed well with mine instead of thinking that I had to be the best at everything I did. Wow. That is strong. Thank you. That's very, very good. Uh, very good advice. I, I would like to come back to these, uh, making a decision you mentioned. Um, do you have a personal, personal strategy to vet your options and go at a decision to make a decision? Well, like the like the phrase says, sometimes I don't know what the right thing to do, and so I'll make a decision knowing I can change that decision, right? And and that can be a little scary if you're like, I don't know whether this new job is going to be any better than the the one I'm in, or maybe it'll be worse. You know, the devil you know, and all that. Um, but you know, and I've I've probably left uh, jobs earlier than a lot of people, and and that has its own problem. Um, 
But sometimes just making a decision, uh, even if I have no idea what the right one is. Um, Because changing jobs is such a common thing in our industry, I I will talk about that for a minute. Because uh, one of the owning my own company has has forced me to uh, not interview for jobs much anymore, right? Because, you know, obviously um, running my own thing, I don't have to go and, and uh, put my, uh, my resume or CV out there um, and then sit. But I miss the interviewing. I really enjoyed interviewing, which I know is sort of weird um, in a lot of people's mind. It's because I sort of like the game of it all. Because one of the strategies I, I, I tell people to do when they're interviewing for a job is to make sure that you're interviewing them too. This is, to me, is crucial to figuring out whether that decision, uh, you know, to, to change jobs is a right one. Um, one of the things that I used to do uh, in interviews is though I'd ask them how long it, in advance they had to book a conference room, which seems like a weird question for a coder to care about. But it's an indication to me of how many meetings versus how much work they could do, right? Because I don't want to be at a place that just spends all day in these meetings that you just sit there and drudge through instead of being able to actually get work done. Um, there are questions like that, that you can sort of get a sense because you have to figure out whether you want to be there as well. I find too many people that interview are so are so sort of begging for the job that they haven't figured out whether they're a good fit. You know, they're so worried about that, that they fit into the company instead of figuring out whether the company fits with them. Um, I see this over and over and over again. And then they start and they're excited and they're like, oh, this place is toxic. Well, yeah. Yeah. That's why they were looking for new developers. (laughs) (laughs) Because everyone else has quit, you know, Um, which just happened to some companies. Uh, So uh, that moment of decision, you know, I would rather make a wrong decision than to sit there and just be stuck. But that does take a certain amount of courage. It takes a certain amount of I'll be okay or faith or I don't know what the, you know, probably a mix of a bunch of those. Making that, the you know, taking that risk is a risk. Everything's a risk. Uh, I, at some point, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, uh, um, I was in a different relationship and I really thought that she didn't like the insecurity of me running the business. And what I mean by that is um, feast or famine, we'd have money and then suddenly, you know, fighting for the next contract and trying to find it and all of that. And so I took a job at a consulting company and I was miserable. Nothing wrong with the consulting company. Just, I, you know, maybe I'm a little bit of a control freak, but it was just difficult. But I, you know, there was a security and you get a check every two weeks and, and uh, it's reliable and I didn't realize because I hadn't gotten buy-in from my then girlfriend that she didn't care about security. I just, I thought she cared about security. And so I'd made this horrible decision to join a consulting company instead of doing what I really wanted to do, which was, you know, do contracting work and to teach and to these other things that I'd already been doing. Um, and that was a big lesson for me that, that, that not only do my decisions affect me, but, everyone around me. So, you know, if you're married and especially if you have kids getting buy-in 
for that level of risk is something else that, you know, I think is so crucially important. You know, um, the problem with my career path has been that when I have worked for companies, I haven't spent a lot of time at companies because I get bored quickly and I sort of see the, you know, the grass is greener and that sort of thing. I don't suggest that necessarily. Uh, but it has exposed me to a lot of different kinds of environments. And that, that, you know, that is what's driven me in this career. I certainly, you know, every decision I made wasn't the right one. Um, but by making more decisions in my life, I had opportunity to be lucky more often. It's, uh, it's sort of like gambling. Um, you know, uh, people here in the States, a lot of them play the lottery and they, they argue that, um, you know, you can't uh, uh, win if you don't play. Uh, I like to think of most of the decisions I make um, that the odds are much better than than the lottery. Um, but it still is this, if I don't, you know, if I'm not open to what's co- going on or if I don't put myself out there at a conference and, and engage with other people and, and you know, fight, uh, my introverted instincts, I'll never, you know, see and hear and, and know what the, the next opportunity is. Because the last thing I want to do is, is um, to stagnate. And what I mean by stagnate isn't, oh my God, I know Angular, but I don't know React yet. What I mean is stagnate is um, becoming bored with what I'm doing. It's not really about the technology to me. It's about the, it's about the challenge. Because when when I would change jobs, the big challenge in changing jobs wasn't being able to work with the new, uh, you know, JavaScript framework that I'm not allowed to work with at my old company. It was I was moving into a company that uh, had a problem they were trying to solve with software. And so my job was to figure out what that problem was and figure out how we could solve it with software. And that's a much, that's a really interesting problem for me. Uh, I worked for, uh, I did a consulting uh, gig with a company in the middle of the country. And what they did was they delivered new tractor trailer trucks. So their problem was that someone would drive a truck that had three trucks attached to it to these different uh, dealerships. And then when they were done, they just had a driver that didn't have a vehicle anymore. And they were trying to figure out how to schedule that better. That's way more interesting than learning another, uh, you know, another way to use Python or these other things. To me, their particular like business problem was really fascinating and us figuring out a way to model that with software and to help have software help them figure it out where they were just using yellow pads to do it before was incredibly rewarding, regardless of the technology I was using. But it took me 15 years to figure out that the technology isn't as interesting as, as the actual things we're building. <laughs> I guess there's no shortcut to learning this. Um, you have to go through the curve of learning the technology and being um, hyped about it and then realize that there's something beyond the technology and then realize that the technology is just uh, the little thing that you have to do to get the, uh, at the real problem. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that comes with experience and that comes with, you know, I think it's too easy in uh, colleges and, and boot camps to have uh, less than challenging projects. 
right? They want people to be able to succeed, but it's also, you know, I, I used to say, I don't think it's true anymore now that I've talked to more educators, but I used to say uh, people come out of college with a bachelor's degree in the U.S. knowing how to uh, uh, write programs at average grades, right? That, that That's all they learned was they learned this depth of knowledge about how computers work, but the reality is that most of the software we write doesn't touch, you know, the registers of a processor and to understand no one's writing their own sort algorithms or their own linked lists. It's it just mm-hmm. not, we don't write code at that level anymore. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, we're, we're running away from our time box and I would like to touch one subject before, before we end. Um, you dispensed a lot of, a lot of, um, very good advice, uh, until now. I have so much to quote. It's, it's, it's fascinating. Um, I know you're writing a, a movie or you're creating a movie, um, which might be full of quotes as well. Um, would you mind telling us uh, what it's about and, and why you wanted to create such a movie? Well, it's interesting. I started, um, working on the movie about two and a half years ago. Uh, just as sort of a whim, I've always loved film and especially documentary films. And uh, I felt like our industry had a story to tell. Uh, I wanted to demystify what software was about, but also talk about who's missing in software. Uh, the fact that, you know, women make up a, sm- a smaller percentage than men, at least here in the U.S. It depends on where you live. Um, but in the U.S., we have a particular problem with um, um, black and Latino uh, and Latina uh, developers making up, you know, small single digit percentages of the actual developers. And I wanted to figure out why. I don't really have a solution in the film of how we can simply fix it, but it was, a again, another interesting problem that I wanted to delve into. The, the movie really came out of this moment in my life where I was reading an article about women in technology and women in programming specifically. And uh, I started to think back and realized I'd never worked with an American woman as a developer. I'd worked with technical writers and testers, and but as a software developer, no American women. I'd worked with a number of uh, uh, women from India and China and Vietnam Um, but no American women. And it wasn't that I hadn't worked with them that bothered me. It was that I didn't notice. Like it never occurred to me that I'd never until I really started like digging back into my memory. And at that moment, I felt like I was sort of part of the problem, right? When I thought of a developer, I thought of what they looked like and that what they looked like was a white male with cargo pants, right? That was the picture I had of what developers looked like, you know, probably Birkenstocks or maybe just flip-flops. But I was feeding into that same um, stereotype and that that bothered me enough that I wanted to tell a story about where we came from. The fact that the first developers were all women. And at one point, uh, software development was 100% women. And uh, I, I thought that was a story that hadn't been told and one that I hoped I could tell. So we, we've uh, done interviews with uh, 50 different people, software developers around the, the world, educators uh, across uh, the United States. And um, we're in post-production right now. We, we're hoping to release by October. And uh, people can uh, go look at the film at helloworldfilm.com. 
there's a little teaser up there to talk about what we're doing and why we're doing it. And uh, something that has me really excited right now. It's sort of a, an extension of the teaching I do, but in a documentary film, the teaching is a lot more subtle than uh, <laughs> than just showing people how Angular works. I'm looking forward to it. It sounds fantastic. Yeah, it's been a it's been a good ride, and uh, um, I'm 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 excited to finally get it out into people's hands uh, and uh, see what they think, and uh, see if I'm right or wrong about some of my assumptions. I'm sure you <laughs> are. I'm sure you are. Okay. Unfortunately, we are really coming at the end of the time box. Do you have one last advice for? newcomers coming out of whichever uh, bootcamp university um, they come out from and starting in our industry, what would you recommend them? I would recommend that you, that all developers in every stage of their career need to approach it from a place of humility, that you can't know everything, you won't know everything, and at some point you won't remember it all, even if you think you know it, and that we're all struggling in the same way. We're all dealing with the same bugs. And so when you think you're struggling with a problem and that makes you a, a bad developer or you're not good at what you do, uh, everyone's making that same struggle. And on the other side of it, if, you're, if, you're, uh, if your life is filled with a tinge of arrogance about how good you are at coding, um, usually most of us take that as, as a... Um, a fact that you feel inferior and that you need to prove it to the rest of us. So stop fooling yourself because you're not fooling any of us. Amen. Thank you. If people wanted to, um, to get a catch on you and start a discussion, where would be the ideal place to start? I'd start with my blog, wildermuth.com. There are links out to the film there, to my Pluralsight courses, to my Wilderminds courses. Everything sort of starts right there at the blog. I'm also on Twitter at Sean Wildermuth. And uh, feel free to say hi there as well, because I'm probably on there way too much. <laughs> probably watching my follower account way too hard. Um, um, but uh, you can certainly reach out there as well. I, I post on my blog. I'm trying to post about once a week with some technical content. And... Uh, then I talk about everything I really care about on Twitter. Mm -hmm. Any place to catch you up live at a conference or so in the coming month? Uh, no. So I've taken this year off uh, to finish the film. The, the first conference I have booked right now is there is, believe it or not, uh, a, a, a Arctic conference. It's called Arctic Kampf or Antarctic Kampf because it's a, a cruise along uh, Antarctica uh, and, uh, um, that's going to be happening in January when it's warm in Antarctica, <laughs> relatively. That sounds, um, that sounds crazy. Yeah, it is crazy. It is crazy. And I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll share a link to that in the show mm -hmm. notes as well. But that's the next big uh, conference I'm doing. I'll be at the Atlanta Code Camp later this year in October that we don't have dates quite yet and a couple of other local things. But uh, I, I won't be doing conferences this year so I can get the, the film finished by October. Sounds cool. Anything else on your plate you would like to mention? I just, I'm uh, publishing new courses on uh, courses.wilderminds.com. Let me say that again courses.wilderminds.com. And of course, I have a bunch of courses and will continue to publish courses on pluralsight.com. Well, Sean, thank you very much. It has been a pleasure. Um, listening to your story and, and, and get all those, uh, those advices. Um, absolutely. 
awesome uh, content. Thank you very much for that. Thank you so much for having me on. This has been a blast. Uh, anyone who's seen me uh, talk at a conference or or taken one of my courses will know how much I enjoy the sound of my own voice. So this has been Thank a pleasure. You. And this has been another episode of Developer's Journey. We'll see each other in two weeks. Bye-bye. Dear listener, if you haven't subscribed yet, you can find this podcast on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, Spotify, and much more head over to www.devjourney.info to read the show notes, find all the links mentioned during the episode, and of course, links to the podcast on all those platforms. Don't miss the next Developer's Journey story by subscribing to the podcast with the app of your choice right now. And if you like what we do, please rate the podcast, write a comment on those platforms, and promote the podcast on social media. This really helps fellow developers discover the podcast and those fantastic journeys. Thank you.